Well, good evening. Um, we have this random like monsoon to to uh, speak over, so that'll be fun. Um, all right, Nehemiah chapter eight. I made it. I called an audible this week on myself, really, and um, we're not going to finish Nehemiah tonight, like was the plan. I'm splitting it into two more weeks. I had one extra week scheduled out just in case, and I used it. So hopefully Chronicles goes according to plan. (laughs) Um, All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that your words are more to be desired than gold, even than large quantities of gold. More valuable and precious to us is walking your way than having our way. Because your word is sweeter than honey, even honey fresh from the comb. And so we ask that tonight you give us great joy as we understand and do your words. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. The bummer of Christianity is the Christian who acts like it's a bummer. <laughs> you, you hear me? Yeah. I do not believe Christianity is a bummer. I do not believe that it is a loss of life. But there are people who act like they've given up so much to be a Christian. And it's so hard. My question to us is, do you miss what you left behind when you left Babylon? When you left the world, do you miss it? Do you feel like Christianity is a life of deprivation? Like you've now taken on this way and you're basically told you can't do this, you can't do that. And now you feel hemmed in. Um, People do feel like this. And we bat- I battle this with people, especially teenagers who don't quite know the love of the Lord yet, um, and in our community. And I talk to people in our community who battle this. Not that they feel Christianity is restrictive, but because they know people who live like Christianity is a bummer. And so the people who live like Christianity is a bummer, what they do is they're like the person going down with the ship and they say, I'm not going down alone. I'll make sure I grab you with me. And so the way that we alleviate sometimes the parts of Christianity that we don't want is we make sure that other people join us. So they press and pressure people into the faith. They're obnoxiously telling them that they're wrong until they get right. And when we have this motivation that we have to win people, we are actually motivated by this feeling that we're miserable because misery loves company. And I have found that people who love the Lord and delight in the way of Christianity are not pressuring people into the kingdom, but they're gently leading with their joy. And we need this in our nation. We need to restore, as we prayed, we need that the Lord would restore in us the joy of his salvation. And stop treating the world like we're angry at their decisions and their laws and their lifestyles. If you're angry at what the world's doing, I mean, if you're angry at the worldling, I should say, I mean, let's be honest, we don't like sin. But if we're angry at the people, then we need to check our hearts and make sure that we're not actually angry at the God who's given us the commands. Well, I'm setting all this up to say 
that, um, first of all, I'm glad that you guys aren't about to stone me because most of you do love the Lord and don't, you delight in his law. Um, but tonight we're going to be told not to mourn, but to celebrate. I want you to look real quick at Nehemiah 8 verse 9. Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. When we gather for worship, brothers and sisters, we should be gathering to celebrate. We should be gathering to celebrate. We're not, our worship is not just about coming in with sin and finding forgiveness. I have to say this because us as Protestants, we got it right, <laughs> right? We, we, Martin Luther remembered that the justification is how we're saved. But the problem is that we so emphasize that, that really worship has become primarily about, I'm a sinner, now I'm saved. I'm a sinner, now I'm saved. And we go through our lives constantly bringing sin before God and asking him for forgiveness and saying, yeah, you've forgiven me. And that's the extent of our worship. That is not the full joy and celebration that we are being ushered into when we worship. We should be celebrating. Yeah, I mean, we go from purgation, God forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. But then we go to illumination where he's giving us a new path and it all climaxes in unification where we become one with Christ. This is something to celebrate we should be gathering to celebrate that our exile from God, our separation from him has been overcome by the work of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to come and mourn and then have this like, oh, cool. The bread and the cup remind me that I'm forgiven. Whew, at least I grew up like that. I grew up with come to communion, you dirty old sinner. And be thankful that we have this bread and cup that you're cleansed now. That's actually not the biblical picture. That's not true worship. We deal with our sin and forgiveness when we come before God, but the rest, God wants us. He wants to have us. He wants himself inside of us, and we come before him to be one with him. We don't have to grovel on our hands and knees as someone once put, crawling on broken glass because, oh, God is so mad, but at least because of Jesus, we're okay. We get to come and stand before him and say, thank you that you are including us in your family. You've adopted us. You've chosen us. You're making us one in Christ. That, by the way, is why we call it communion. It's union. It's with union. And brothers and sisters, 
We would be healthier to our community if we remembered that we do not worship to mourn, we worship to celebrate. That's what Sunday is. It's Resurrection Day. It is a triumphant declaration that the gospel is good news, not a bummer. So is Christianity about deprivation or is it about celebration? Oh, come on. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're there. All right, cool. Christianity is about celebration. So this is what we see here. Uh, We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, um, remember that Nehemiah is a story about uh, Nehemiah going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were broken down by the Babylonians. And he's now being, he's leaving Babylon to go to Jerusalem so that Jerusalem can be once again a city with walls, a city of salvation. So that people can find salvation in this city. That's what the walls are about. Walls brought salvation to people in troublous times. Um, but now when we come to Nehemiah 8, you saw last week with me that they finished the wall in 52 days. A miracle by even modern construction standards. Um, but So we're about two-thirds through Nehemiah now, and the wall's done. So now what? Now what do we do? We did the job! Are we just going to look at each other? Or maybe this. You have come to the completion of your wall. You've built it. You feel like you've accomplished something God's given you to do, and you now feel tired. Do you feel tired? Or you feel... Like there's nothing left for you to do. Do you wonder what's next in your life? Well, what we're told as the people come to the completion of the wall, the Levites say in verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or in other words, the joy of the Lord is our purpose. This is what we need. We need to aim our lives to live in the joy of the Lord. So, what we're going to see is that. So, let's look at Nehemiah 8. I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll cover what is happening. 8 verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Forgive me for going 40 to 50 minutes. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, and Mishael, and Milkajah, and Hashem, and Hashbadanah, and Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, of, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, uh, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazbad, Hanan, Poliah, the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, 
from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading as we do every Sunday night. We read the law, I give the sense, hopefully you go home and understand it. (laughs) And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. In other words, have the best of the best. This is feast time. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. For this day is holy. Now, be quiet doesn't mean no noise. It just means stop your wailing and start celebrating is more of the idea. Um, uh, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses and all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the, t- to the hills and bring in branches of olive wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. A booth is like a tent. It's a shelter, okay? Some of your translations say tabernacles. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, that is also Joshua, uh, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great rejoicing and day by day, the first day of the last, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Hmm. So what we see in this is that if we want to celebrate, here's the way we do it. God's word brings us joy. God's word brings us joy. But joy, like the wall that they were building, doesn't come in one big clash. Joy is built like a wall, one stone at a time, or one word of God at a time. You want more joy in your life, we need more of God's word, one word at a time. Now, the way that this happens in our text is that the word of God brought them great joy two ways. First, We see that it was through understanding God's word that they were filled with great joy. First, it was through the understanding of the word. You saw that at the end of verse 12, it said that they had understood the words that were declared to them. It said that they made great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Yeah, understanding God's word. Like when this book of 66 books 
with various languages and, and literary genres and um, the all these weird genealogies and unpronounceable names to these weird wars and then to these psalms that are always like so melodramatic to Paul's confusing writings and the awesome Jesus stories and then what is revelation? Like through all of this, the more that the Bible confuses us, the more it leaves us a little fuzzy about our salvation in God. But it's when you, and you understand this, I believe, the more that you understand the word of God, the more it brings joy to us. As we slowly but surely begin to understand little portions, and then the portions become a story, and then the story begins guiding our lives, and then we have joy because we understand God's law. That's what I discovered in my life, is that as I understood it, I found joy. As I see students beginning to, parts of the Bible begin clicking, they begin getting excited about God. It's really hard to get excited about someone whom you cannot understand. But understanding God's word gives us great joy. But understanding God's word doesn't just come the way we wish through a download. God, here I am. Download your information into me. It doesn't work that way. It actually requires some work from us. And I see six ways, six requirements from the people as they understand the law. I want you to please note that there are requirements here. It's not that Ezra did all the work and Ezra, well, well we got that moment for everyone. Um, flash flood warning, everyone on the podcast. Um, it's not that Ezra was the best teacher in the world and everyone understood it. It's that the people met Ezra halfway. So let's look at this. Verse 1. First requirement to understanding God's word is initiation. Initiation. Who comes to Ezra in verse 1? The people. Ezra didn't say, come on people, we're going to have a Bible study now. The wall's done, let's have a Bible study. No, the wall's done. The people come to Ezra. And the people say, Ezra, pull out the book and teach it to us. There's initiation. I've often wondered what would happen if after I say, hey, let's greet one another, and then I just let you guys yip yap until someone said, Pastor Brandon, it's time to teach the word. What would happen if I made you guys initiate that? We might be here for a while, but I think eventually it would happen. Some of you are like, I don't come to church without the word being taught. So um, it would happen. But what if we had more initiation on our part? Yeah? What if we were hungering for that? Second requirement is that we see the people had great attention. Verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square, uh, and so forth, from early morning until midday. That would be about three hours. It would be about from 6 a.m. to, well, wait, what did I just read? Uh, early morning. That's No, that's like six hours. 6 a.m. to noon. That's, yeah. So... I'm just going to keep going tonight, okay? Um, yeah, even for hours, they had great attention. Now, granted, there were breaks, right? This wasn't just a rambling run-on, but they were in it with attention. Third requirement is tradition. And what I mean by tradition is verse 4. Now, there was all those names, which I was just really dying through because... Um, I don't sit there in my study. There's more better things to study than how to pronounce these names. So I was actually just winging them. And <laughs> it's like, they keep coming. Um, but there are 13 of them. 13 people are standing beside Ezra. So six on one side, seven on the other side. What is their function? We're not told anything that they do. They're just there. And to me, what it says is that Nehemiah is not opening the law and explaining it to them 
from his own personal private interpretation and thoughts. These men are here representing that this is the Jewish tradition of how we interpret this. This is what the people of God have always understood the word of God to say. And we don't gather to have clever, creative, inventive new ways of interpreting God's law. Yes, sometimes we learn things through archaeology that improve our understanding, but we're not here to say, what do we want this word to say? How do we want this to fit into our lives? We're here to submit ourselves to the tradition of the teaching of God's law. We don't make things up. We don't change things. Um, I saw a sign today. We're driving by and it said, um, uh, God is still speaking. And it was on a rainbow flag. Do you know what the implication is? There's no tradition because God is still recreating his intentions for us. That's what it means that he's still speaking. The Bible's not closed. It's still being written. No, we don't believe that. We believe that we stand in a tradition, we receive it, and we teach what is faithful to Christian beliefs over the centuries. So we require tradition. Um, we want the traditional understanding of scripture. Uh, we want, we, it requires, to understand God's word, it requires expectation in verse 5. In verse 5, it says that the people stood up when Ezra read from the law. They stood up. What does standing up do? It shows reverence, for one. When someone enters the room and you stand, it means you have respect for them. But another thing it shows is, it shows anticipation or expectation. This is why we stand when we begin our worship. We say, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us stand for it is time for the Lord to act. Now, if you don't believe that, you might as well, you can just sit on your rump and just say, oh, I'm just going to be entertained tonight. But if we believe that we're before the presence of the Lord and that he's going to act tonight, then the appropriate response is to stand because we anticipate, we expect something to happen. This is what happens at sporting events, right? Why do fans stand at crucial moments? They stand because they there's anticipation. Something's about to happen. This is why we stand in our worship. Uh, fifth, adoration in verse 6. Ezra blessed the people, the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen. They lift their hands, they bow their heads, they put their faces to the ground. So there's hand raising, there's prostrating, there's, there's responding to what Ezra's saying. There's all kinds of things that we do here on a, on a nightly basis, uh, a weekly basis. Um, but this is called worship. This is adoration. Because, brothers and sisters, we need to understand God's word not only in our heads, but in our hearts. And that doesn't happen unless we get our hearts aligned with desiring him. This is what worship does, is it teaches us to desire God. So we need to have adoration because the Bible is not just something to mentally master. It is something to, like Psalm 19, we prayed, to actually cherish and to desire like honey. And then sixth, understanding God's word requires interpretation. So in verse 7, there are the other 13 people, these are Levites, who help the people understand the law. Ezra reads from it, they give them the sense of what it is saying. They're interpreting. They're clarifying. They're doing what I'm doing for you guys. Unfortunately, the Bible does need interpretation. Because, um, believe it or not, Nehemiah does not live in the 21st century. He does not uh, live on our continent. He does not speak our language. There's a lot of things that we have to say, what was going on there? And what does that mean here? And some of this we can do on our own. The Lord can speak to us through the Bible as we read it. But there's also a need for us to have the Bible interpreted to us, lest we go astray into our own fanciful things or we get caught up in a cult. That stuff happens. 
we have to understand how it's interpreted as well. And so one of the things Calvary Chapel does is we teach the scriptures. We explain it to people because Look, when we do this, when we come to God's word with initiation, with attention, tradition, expectation, adoration, and interpretation, all these things bring understanding, and understanding makes the people go out with great joy, rejoicing. As we saw in verse 12, the result of all this is that they go out rejoicing because they understood what was taught them. That's what we go after. We want us to understand the scriptures. So God's word brings us great joy by understanding his word. It also brings us great joy second by doing, doing God's word. You understand it. Cool. You got some joy, but your joy is complete when you do God's word. This is verses 13 to the end of the chapter. We see that on the second day, so they've understood the word, but on the second day, they're looking at it more intensely and they discover some things. Oh my goodness, there's things here we need to do. We have to get our bodies acting underneath the authority of God's word. So doing his word is the difference between knowing his word and growing as a Christian. Some of us know God's word, but we're not growing. It's doing God's word that links the knowing to the growing. And so this is what we see them do. In verse 13, first, they discover something called the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. This was an important feast that Israel celebrated in the seventh month. Um, the seventh month was considered the first month on their calendar uh, because it was the, the harvest. It's fall time. It's uh, The seventh month would be about October on our calendar. Uh, this was the new harvest and the new sowing of seeds for the next year's harvest. Um, the Feast of Booths was one of the three feasts where God commanded Israel to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. It was a pilgrimage. So they would sing the Psalms of Ascent, which we're actually beginning in two weeks. They'll sing the Psalms of, uh, I'm sorry, for the Psalm, call and response Psalm, not teaching wise, but yeah, the Psalms of Ascent would be sung as they're coming toward Jerusalem. And then they'd be grabbing branches on their way because they didn't have nice uh, REI tents and whatever. Um, so they would just be grabbing um, sticks and stuff and branches and they get to Jerusalem. And if you know someone, then you build a little fort like right off of their house or on the top of their house. If you don't know them, then you're doing it around the courtyards of the temple. But the idea is that the people were building these tents all around the temple of Jerusalem because what it was, was what Israel did in the wilderness as the tabernacle led them through the wilderness. They camped tribe by tribe around the tabernacle. And so Every year they came to reenact what God had done for them and guiding them through the wilderness. And so they discover the Feast of Booths. They're like, wow, we haven't done this in some time. So let's do this. And so they get together and they do it. And imagine how this Feast of Booths would have felt because God now for the second time has led them through the wilderness from their captivity to a new land. First it was Egypt. Now they're delivered from Babylon and they're given a new land and they're celebrating. You see this um, in, it was in verse 17, that, that they hadn't done something like this since the days of Joshua. There was never a time when they excitedly re-entered the land except for the time when Joshua led them in. This was one of the Feast of Booths of Feast of Booths. This is like one of the most climactic celebratory feasts that they've ever had. Um, they discover this feast. And so they, what do they do? Well, they direct the people how to do it, right? Hey, we found God's word tells us to do this. It's about time to do this. So what do they do? They say, go figure it out. 
Everyone do it the way you think you should do it, the way you want to do it. Interpret it your way, whatever works for you, man. That's the whole culture of spirituality, all right? Spirituality means basically you just kind of go with what your spirit tells you to do. That's how we kind of seek the Lord um, or whatever, you know, the Lord's usually more of this like vague, ambiguous force in the cosmos. That's not how they do it here. The church leaders, well, in our application, the church leaders, uh, the Israelite leaders are giving them instructions in what it properly looks like to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so the people in one, in unity, come and do it together. So they direct the people, that was in verse 15, they tell them, go out to the hills and find these branches and build the booths. So they discover the Feast of Booths, they direct the people, and then finally we see that they actually do it. All the people respond and they do it. That was verses 16 to 17. You see that they actually start building the booths and there's great celebration. Brothers and sisters, rejoicing is the result, again, of God's word. We understand it, they rejoice. They do it. And there is, verse 17, great rejoicing. This is what happens when we understand and do God's word. This is how we develop joy as Christians. We're not bummer Christians. We're not Christians who are like, I'm so deprived, man. I wish I could go to that party like you're doing this weekend, but I just can't. You know, my youth pastor or my pastor or my dad or my wife tells me that, like, I can't live that way anymore because, you know, we're, we're Christians and all and... There's no joy in that, brothers and sisters. If we actually submit ourselves to the scriptures, understand them and do them, you will find the word working joy in you. It's an amazing thing. So I want to ask then, why are we so often so serious? Why are we afraid to celebrate? You know, one of, I've had a lot of favorite memories lately in our church, but one of them, a recent one, does anybody remember this? On Ascension Sunday, um, uh, we, we, we're reading Psalm 47, which is a psalm about God going up to his throne. So we read that on Ascension Sunday, and I led the psalm, and the first one was, clap your hands, O peoples. And before you guys even responded with the next line, every, people were clapping. Because the psalm said, clap your hands. And that was like, it took me back, back a little bit, because like, I just wasn't used to people like, the psalm say, clap your hands, let's celebrate. And I was like, that's awesome. I'll just stop. Like, yeah, let's clap our hands. This is celebrating. Um, this is what, like, why do we always have to be so serious? Like, ugh. I mean, I'm going to thank the Lord like a bummed person. Thank you that you healed me. I mean, I expected it. <laughs> it's okay that we have emotion and that we celebrate. It's okay that communion is something that, like, thank you, Lord. We don't come. See, there are some traditions where you receive communion kneeling. We don't kneel. We come standing upright before Christ because he's unified us with himself. We receive with a smile. I bless you. I don't say, now I know what you've been doing. <laughs> We want the joy of the Lord, and that's why we receive communion every week. So why are we so serious? Why do we feel like we have to mourn to be religious? I mean, there is, don't get me wrong, there's a time for mourning. It's called Advent and Lent, and it's coming upon us. <laughs> but um, 
But see, what we find in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, we find in the larger portion, we don't pray this part of Psalm 51 every week, but he says, um, let me hear rejoicing and gladness that the bones you've crushed may exult. Like, yes, our sin crushes us and we mourn over our sins, but when we come before God, we don't sit there like I sometimes do with my dog and just give it the stink eye because I'm so mad that it peed on the carpet again. Um, I will just hold that grudge because I'm just mad at that dog. Because that dog, listen, I'm not pouring myself out so that dog can be filled with me. But God is pouring himself out in Christ so that we can be filled with him. Right? God's not going to, holding his grudge. He's like, don't be so hard on yourself. Stand up, sinner. Great indeed is this word. Faithful and true is the saying, Christ Jesus came to the world, save sinners of whom I am chief. And so what do we do? We stand. There's a time to be on our knees and there's a time to stand up and say, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Yeah? I hope that you guys sing that heartily. Sometimes I feel like I'm leading dead horses to water, but I'm kidding. Only every now and then it's like, what's in the air? Everyone's sleepy today. Um, In all seriousness, though, this is not to say fake your enthusiasm. That is worthless. I do not want cheap enthusiasm, nor does God. This is not to say you have to feel happy to celebrate or to be joyful. All it is to say is we don't have to be so serious all the time. There's a type of seriousness that makes us joyful, C.S. Lewis said. I don't remember what book, but I know he said it because I heard it quoted. You know, the most authoritative way to quote things. <laughs> um, just came to me on the fly, so I have to admit that I don't know what book that came from. Um, okay, but joy, here's what we need to hear. What is joy? Joy is the habit. Joy is the habit of taking God more seriously than myself. If I take myself too seriously, then I will mourn when he tells me to celebrate. No, but I should never have said I should never have said that. I'm such a jerk. I'm so stupid. I'm so dumb. Beating ourselves up. You're taking yourself way too seriously and you're not taking God seriously enough. The God who says stand and sin no more. Okay? Joy is the habit of taking God more seriously than we take ourselves. So if I take myself too seriously, I mourn when I should be celebrating. But if I take God too lightly, guess what I do? I celebrate all the time and I never mourn. I celebrate when I should be mourning. I sin, I rebel, I hurt people, I hurt my wife, I yell at my kids and I'm celebrating like nothing happened. Oh God, no, I'm good, nothing happened. Now that's taking my, that's taking God too lightly. It's a balance. And that's why joy is the habit of taking God more seriously than ourselves. We don't take him too lightly. We don't take ourselves too seriously. This is where joy comes from. And I say it's the habit. Because joy, brothers and sisters, happiness is a moment. It's an action, right? I can eat ice cream and feel happy. Two hours later, I am not happy. But I can feel happy through an act. Joy is a habit. The more I take God more seriously than myself, the more joy grows within me. So Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people to celebrate because they know what time it is. What time is it? It's the seventh month. What time is the seventh month? It's a time to celebrate, not to mourn. And so... I believe that the church calendar, which we followed for about a year or so, maybe, yeah, I think, maybe two years, is wise in giving us times to mourn and times to celebrate. 
It doesn't mean you can't feel other things in the midst of that. But it's God giving us a vehicle to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Through Lent. But then we celebrate. And boy, do we celebrate at Easter. It's my favorite season with you guys. Because Easter is just so climactic. In a just real raw celebratory way. Um, there's wisdom in that. That Nehemiah and Ezra know what time it is. It's the seventh month. So here's what the seventh month looked like. Day one, it's called the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets were blown to announce the new year. And that's what was happening on day one. They come to Ezra and Nehemiah and say, teach us the law. So they know what time it is. The people know what time it is. Ezra and Nehemiah know what time it is because guess what they had ready? It said in verse, was it five? They had a platform built. Yeah, verse four. They had a wooden platform built for this purpose. What does that mean? It means that the platform was already there. Ezra and Nehemiah knew the seventh month was coming. They had the platform ready for this purpose. The people knew it was coming. They all know what time it is. And they say, it is time to open the book. It is a new year, meaning it's a new start for us. We've come back to Israel. We've rebuilt the wall. We have a new temple. God's doing a new work. Let's celebrate. The 10th day of the seventh month, it happens somewhere between the first reading of the law that we read and then they're celebrating the Feast of Booths. Because the Feast of Booths was on the 15th day. The 10th day is the Day of Atonement. And also known as the Days of Awe leading up to it. Um, we don't read about the Day of Atonement here. It happens somewhere in here. But we know that the Day of Atonement would happen on the 10th day. And yet... Though there might be a moment of mourning our sins, but the moment they... Do you remember the Day of Atonement? We were in Leviticus, like, what? Before COVID, so that was, like, last world. Um, they, they, they pray their sins upon the goat, and then they release the goat into the wilderness. They send it off to Azazel. It's a really weird part of the Bible, but Azazel is probably this, like, wilderness demon, because demons are real. And so they send the sins... Where they send the sins? Back to the devil. Awesome. Take this devil. You made us do this. Take it back. <laughs> and then the other goat is sacrificed to God. And this is the people being, this is what they're, they're now, the smoke goes up and they're, they're being given to God. Uh, the day of atonement was for cleansing the temple and the people on an annual basis so that the sins are removed. So when the day of atonement ends and the priest comes out at the end, the people celebrate for the next year, God will continue to live with them because the sanctuary has been cleansed. The sins have been taken back to Azazel. And then, uh, so then on the 15th day is the Feast of Booths. So they know what time it is. It's the seventh month, people. Let's get our game on. They anticipated this moment. We said they had built the platform. The people come and like, hey, read to us from the book of the law. And then, um, yeah, and so that's what we see. Um, but I think that we take time too seriously. Because we take ourselves too seriously. Think about this. We don't think of time as something to celebrate. Right? Your next birthday, you know what number it is. <laughs> I mean, most of us are at that age where we stop celebrating the number. <laughs> um, time is not kind to us. We take time way too seriously. Or at the start of school, no, it's coming upon me. Or my registration is due, no. And everything keeps going up, so you know it's just dreadful. Um, this is how we view time, but not in the Bible. And this is why I find it super important that we are aware of what Christian time is, 
Like right now, this is the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. Why is that important? Because we celebrate time. In a Christian context, time is something to celebrate. It's not something to mourn. Because time inches us closer to the return of the Lord. Time is also what God entered into and became flesh to save us. Time is our way of marking celebration after celebration of what God has done in our world and in our lives. That's what time is to God's people. It's a way of remembering his works in our lives. We have to stop taking ourselves too seriously and take God more seriously. It's not just, what is it's September 11th. That's actually pretty significant, isn't it? So that's the civil calendar. It's September 11th. But also in the Christian world, we're in the middle of Pentecost. God is working on his people. He's growing us and he's growing fruit in us. We celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, See, time is exciting. Time has a climax in the Bible. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All that happened in the fullness of time. Do you know what time it is? Do you know what time it is? <laughs> it's uh, about 623. No, what time it is, is it's time to celebrate God's salvation. That's what the seventh month meant to Ezra and Nehemiah and the people. It is time to celebrate his salvation. So for us, brothers and sisters, um, I at one time, I think maybe when we were back in Leviticus, I'd wrote notes in my Bible on the festivals in Leviticus 23. I'd wrote New Testament verses next to all of them. I don't remember where I got these or where they came from, but they're in my Bible. And so I was like, oh, wow, look at that. Uh, these festivals that we just named, the three festivals they have in the seventh month are all alluded to in the New Testament so that we have a new way of celebrating this time, the same time. So consider the Feast of Trumpets, the Declaration of the New Year. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Paul says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the blinking of an eye at the last trumpet. The last feast of trumpets, something magnificent happens. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, when this perishable puts on imperishable, and this mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, Christ has defeated death. And at the last feast of trumpets, so will we. Time is worth celebrating. The day of atonement. Christ has cleansed us and will remove all sin. Just like the tabernacle is cleansed and the sins were removed to the wilderness, Christ 
I saw the flash. <laughs> I should have warned you, but it came really fast. God has spoken. By the way, go home and read. Uh, go home and pray Psalm 29 tonight. The voice of the Lord. It's all about the voice of the Lord. Thunders. It says. No, I just saw the flash. Where am I? Uh, the feast. Uh, oh, day of atonement. So Christ has cleansed our sins, and He will completely remove sin from this earth. Right? We still live with sin. I mean, you know your neighbor, right? And you know your spouse. You know that we still live with sin. Um, but it will be removed. And so here's here's an illusion. Um, in Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus gives us the parable about the sheep and the goats. And it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate the peoples one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, this is really interesting because this is what happens on the Day of Atonement, is that two goats are brought, and one is chosen, and the other, one's chosen for God, one is chosen for Azazel. They're separated. Now, I know that Jesus is saying the sheep and the goats are separated. I think that he's, he's taking the image of the Day of Atonement and he's changing one of the goats to a sheep to show that my people are sheep and that they have changed from mere animals or from mere mortals to like these special animals, right? Um, that sheep are different than goats. And that this is the, what he's alluding to, that the sheep will go into the kingdom. They will go into the temple to be offered to God. We who follow Christ's teachings will be offered to God when he returns. But the goats, the sins of the world will be put on those goats and sent to Azazel. And Jesus says, those that are goats will go into everlasting destruction. They will be sent into the eternal wilderness. So, yes, we're cleansed. God's people can stand before him because he's cleansed us. But we will one day see sin literally sent back where it belongs. And it will not be in our midst anymore. Time is worth celebrating. And then finally, the Feast of Booths. You already know how they encamped around Jerusalem. Well, as the temple was among his people, Christ is among us. As the temple led them through the wilderness... Christ leads us to his kingdom. Christ is among us. He's among us. And he will lead us to his kingdom. Did you know that there, in some churches, there's a tradition of reading the gospel? When you read a gospel text, the reader reads it from within the congregation. And it's meant to symbolize that Christ is not separate from us. He's among us, as the gospel is read. He's among us and he's leading us to his kingdom. Revelation 21 verse 2 beautifully pictures the ultimate feast of booths. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Hold on, there's a flash. Just didn't want anyone to jump again. <laughs> And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What's the temple now? It's the whole city of Jerusalem, right? And now we all live in and around 
we this is the ultimate feast of booths we're all celebrating the presence of god forever the so the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away time is worth celebrating so brothers and sisters we remember that time celebrates what christ has done in space and time for us and we remember his word to understand it and to do it because christianity is not about deprivation christianity is about celebration because christ came and christ emptied himself into us how are we not celebrating that because we forget let's not forget glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages amen